Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, November 3rd, 2023. There's a definite chill in the air, and the highs today will only get up to 57. Lows tonight will dip down into the 40s. Over the weekend, the highs will reach 60 degrees, with lows in the mid-40s. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For the numbers game on Thursday, the midday drawing numbers were 7, 9, 1, and 7. The evening drawing numbers were 8, 0, 4, and 4. Mass cash numbers for Thursday were 2, 3, 12, 15, and 35. Powerball numbers drawn on Wednesday were 22, 26, 39, 47, 63 in the extra ball of 12. And finally, for Mega Millions drawing, on Tuesday, the numbers were 14, 35, 37, 55, 70, and an extra ball of 15. The lead story on page one of today's newspaper is headlined, Perry, I Loved Him. Jury deliberations begin as son faces charge of killing his father. By Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. Eli Perry, the Mashpee man charged with killing his father in 2017 and burying his body off Cape, told a Barnstable Superior Court jury Wednesday he took full responsibility for killing his father, Raymond Perry, after an argument at their home spiraled out of control when his father pulled a gun on him. Testifying in his defense on the final day of his three-week jury trial, Eli Perry said his addiction to drugs rapidly progressed and his behavior became increasingly more erratic in the days leading up to his father's death on November 26, 2017, at 37 Riverside Road. Jurors, who heard closing arguments in the case following Perry's testimony, began deliberations Thursday morning and had not reached a verdict as of 2.15 p.m. Eli Perry, age 43, said he was high on Adderall and on edge waiting in a small dwelling on his father's property where he lived at the time. He said once his father got home, he would talk to him about the tension that had been building for weeks surrounding his drug use and his then-girlfriend, Paige Malone, who was also using drugs at the time. My dad and I had a complicated relationship, but I loved him and I didn't want him to be disappointed. It gave me anxiety feeling that he was so upset, Perry said. He said he had been heavily abusing Adderall for days leading up to that night and had not slept for over 24 hours. When his father got home, Eli Perry said he went into his house and tried to talk to him. Things quickly turned ugly when his father grabbed a handgun from a nearby shelf and pointed it at him, he said. That's when Eli Perry said he hit his father twice with a fireplace log, knocking him to the ground. He said he wrapped a knife around his father's neck when the injured man crawled for the gun that had been knocked from his hand. He told the jury it was an attempt to forcefully prevent his father from going for the gun. 
That's when I rolled him over onto his back, and that's when I see there's just blood everywhere, Perry said. I was just on my knees holding his chest. It was just horrible. After the alleged slaying, Perry and Malone, who was there that night and testified against him on October 26th under a cooperation agreement, wrapped the body of Raymond Perry in a rug, loaded the body onto a truck, and buried his body near an off-cape cranberry bog. Perry and Malone then returned to Raymond Perry's house and attempted to hide the evidence by painting the walls and laying new flooring, court records showed. Malone testified that Perry forced her to hide evidence and dispose of the body. Raymond Perry was reported missing on December 1, 2017, but records indicate friends and family had not been in touch with him since November 26 that year. Several days later, on December 18, 2017, investigators found Perry's body buried under a mulch pile near a cranberry bog at Old Forge Farm in Plymouth. His hands and feet were bound with zip ties, and he was covered with a rug that authorities determined came from his home in Mashpee. Perry and Malone were arrested and charged in February 2018. Malone pleaded guilty in March 2019 to being an accessory after the fact to murder, misleading police, and unlawful disposal of a human body, serving five years in prison and sentenced to three years probation. Shortly after Perry's testimony Wednesday, defense attorney Eduardo Masferrer told the jury during his closing that his client should not be convicted for murder in the first or second degree charges for which the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office has argued. Masferrer said Eli Perry's erratic behavior prying to the killing, as well as the lack of evidence proving intent, amounted to voluntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter, he said, is when an individual is killed from sudden combat, heat of passion based on arguments or provocation, or of a use of excessive force in self-defense. What makes this such a particularly sad, hard case is that all of this was avoidable, Masferrer said. Because Eli Perry could not control his addiction and was out of control, out of control in terms of taking too much Adderall and acting, not thinking, not planning, not deciding, rather reacting and acting. Cape and Island's assistant district attorney, Jessica Alumba, argued in her closing that Perry should be found guilty of first-degree murder, citing the three knife cuts on Raymond Perry's throat and the one on his cheek, as well as the concerted effort to dispose of his body and hide evidence. The evidence is clear that this defendant murdered his father with deliberate premeditation and with extreme atrocity and cruelty, Alumba said. And what happens, Ray has bled to death and is lying on that floor. The defendant begins the cleanup. Superior Court Judge Mark Gildea said jury deliberation would begin Thursday. Cape Cod Delegates Consider Pay Raise by Susan Vaughn, special to the Cape Cod Times. Stipends for the Cape Cod Assembly of Delegates have remained at $1,000 a year since 1992. Now the body is looking for a raise. A public hearing on a proposed ordinance that also includes salary recommendations for the Board of Regional Commissioners 
was on the Assembly's meeting agenda Wednesday at the Barnstable County Complex. No one from the public spoke on the matter, but Delegate Mary Chaffee of Brewster proposed some changes, which she said are long overdue after 31 years without an increase. The proposal calls for Assembly members to receive $5,000 a year and additional stipends of $2,000 for the Speaker and $1,000 for the Deputy Speaker. In contrast, she noted that the three regional commissioners' proposed salaries are $15,000 a year each, with an additional $2,000 for the board chairman. The regional commissioners currently make around $14,000 a year based on the total wages listed in the Fiscal 23 County B budget. There is a significant lack of equity between the two government bodies for roles that are not significantly different, Chaffee said. Look at all the sophisticated and challenging policy issues we're dealing with. She said the stipends should be much closer, if not equal. Chafee argued that better compensation might attract more well-qualified candidates for the Assembly. She also recommended one way for the Assembly to accommodate salary increases would be to rescind the option of health insurance for delegates. After the meeting, Assembly Speaker Patrick Prince of Barnstable said he is in favor of eliminating the health insurance option for all county part-time employees, which the delegates are. He said paying for health insurance is a long-term liability since the costs can vary year to year. Deputy Speaker Randy Potash of Chatham said the insurance costs can add up to half a million dollars a year. Prince said the stipend proposals are just in the beginning stages and will need a lot more analysis committee meetings, and looking at other ways to reduce overall costs in the county government. The Regional Commission will have to review the salary proposals and send them back to the Assembly before any action is taken. The proposal calls for the ordinance to go into effect on January 1, 2025. Police say candy with sewing needle found in sandwich. By Rashik Tabusa Mujib of the Cape Cod Times. Sewing needles found inside two candy bars given out during Halloween trick-or-treating in Sandwich is under investigation by the Sandwich Police. The mother of an eight-year-old reported first finding a sewing needle in a small Snickers bar, and then when she checked her other children's candy, a sewing needle was also found in a Twix candy bar, according to a Facebook post on Thursday by the Sandwich Police Department. On Wednesday evening, Sandwich police officers were called to the Sandwich residence to inspect the candy. The mother told police that her son was checking his candy when he noticed something poking out of it. The wrapper also had a puncture hole and the sewing needle was inside the bar, the mother told the police. The family went trick-or-treating in the Main Street area of Sandwich, but police did not share specific street locations with the Times. The police department recommends everyone inspect all trick-or-treat candy collected from the downtown area of Sandwich. The police department has not received any other similar complaints, and residents are encouraged to contact Sandwich police if they suspect or find any candy that has been tampered with. On Thursday, Sandwich police said there was no further information to share about the incident. Pickleball wastewater on agenda for Falmouth meeting by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. Proposals for the engineering and design of a new wastewater system 
as well as a petition to allocate $2.6 million for the installment of pickleball courts at Trotting Park Fields, are just a couple of issues Falmouth voters will consider at the upcoming special town meeting on November 13th. The two items are among 20 articles on the agenda, several addressing changes to the town's zoning and general bylaws pertaining to funding for capital improvements and projects. Another set of articles relates to a tax exemption policy change for elderly residents and the usage of the Woods Hole, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard Steamship Authority embarkation fee to fund traffic signs through Woods Hole. The most pressing and noteworthy articles, according to town officials, deal with a petition for funding the construction of pickleball amenities at Trotting Park Fields, Article 11, and the plan to fund, design, and engineer a wastewater collection system for the northeastern part of the Mar Vista Peninsula and the T-Ticket Path Peninsula, which is Article 6. What is the pickleball proposal in Falmouth? Last year, Barnstable Superior Court Judge Greg Pasquale allowed a motion for a preliminary injunction sought by Lawrence School neighbors ordering the town to stop pickleball play at the school until further order of the court. The town has since been seeking solutions to resolve the tensions that the game causes between players and residents who live in close proximity to pickleball courts. One such solution, Article 11, suggests using $2.6 million in free cash, a pool of surplus money from various departments, to design, construct, furnish, and equip pickleball courts at Trotting Park Fields. The popularity of the sport, not just in Massachusetts or here in Falmouth, but throughout the country, is huge, said Falmouth Town Manager Mike Renshaw. Jurisdictions are scrambling to build enough courts to meet the demand, to meet the needs. Renshaw said the optimal distance between a court and the nearest residence is 400 feet, and the petitioned location meets that standard. We recognize we need some additional courts. It's just you have to be smart about where you put them, Renshaw said. What is the wastewater proposal for town meeting? Article 6, calling for the engineering, designing, and permitting of a wastewater collection system for the northeastern part of the Mar Vista Peninsula and the T-Ticket Path Peninsula was narrowly defeated at April's town meeting. Renshaw said, but he said another petition, Article 13, may offset that chance this time. Article 13 would set up a urine diversion pilot program, an alternative option for removing nitrogen from septic systems. Renshaw said installing a wastewater collection system is the more proven alternative but the pilot program would be more of a data collection process whereby volunteer residents would install the system in their homes and data would be sent to the State Department of Environmental Protection for analysis. This is kind of the second attempt to give this much needed, critically needed sewer treatment under design and under construction for those two specific peninsulas, Renshaw said. What else is on the town meeting warrant? A couple of other items include Articles 17 to 19, a tax exemption change for elderly residents, and Article 14, using $50,000 from the embarkation fee from the Steamship Authority's operations at the Woods Hole Terminal to construct traffic signs leading to the port. Falmouth Assistant Town Manager Peter Johnson-Staub 
said the tax exemption change is an effort to alleviate the tax burden for elderly residents. The article calls for changing the deduction rate from $500 to $1,000 and changing the qualification age from 70 to 65, as well as indexing the rates to inflation. An embarkation fee is a fee associated with passenger embarkation at ports set by state law designed to create an additional revenue source for port towns like Falmouth to use to offset the adverse impact of steamship authority business in town. The article states installing the traffic signs from the Woods Hole Fire Station down to Harbor Hill Road and Nobska Road would improve compliance with speed limits along the narrow corridor. What is a town meeting? A town meeting is a gathering of a town's eligible voters and a legislative body for towns in Massachusetts. 13 of the 15 Cape Cod towns have open town meetings, meaning all voters who live in that town may vote on all matters. Falmouth has a representative town meeting, where all voters elect town meeting members who then vote on all town meeting matters. The town of Barnstable is governed by an elected town council rather than by a town meeting. When and where is the town meeting? The Falmouth Town Meeting will be held on November 13th at 7 p.m. in Memorial Auditorium at Lawrence School. Where can I find the warrant? The warrant can be found on the Town of Falmouth's website under Boards and Committees on the Town Meeting tab. Massachusetts Judge Won't Block Healy's Emergency Shelter Cap by Kinga Barandi of the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Dateline, Boston. A Superior Court judge sitting in Suffolk County denied a request for an injunction and temporary restraining order that would have prevented Governor Maura Healey from enforcing a cap on the number of people Massachusetts can accept into its emergency shelter program. In finding for the Office of Housing and Livable Communities and Housing Secretary Edward M. Augustus, Jr., Superior Court Judge Deborah Squires Lee found that the state lacks the space and the funds to house any more people than the limit of 7,500 families, some 25,000 people. It had determined to be the cutoff point. The judge also found that the Healy-Driscoll administration had alerted the legislature to the impending dearth of funds and space when she requested lawmakers in September to appropriate an additional $250 million to fund the program through the rest of the year. The lawmakers had not acted, citing a lack of a clear plan from the administration and from Washington as to next steps and the number of people expected to come into Massachusetts. In its filing requesting the injunction, lawyers for civil rights had said the administration violated specific language in the state budget funding the emergency shelter system that would have required the administration to alert lawmakers and file a report, allowing them a 90-day window to respond and take action. The judge found that the demand for emergency shelter sharply outstrips the funding provided by the legislature for the emergency shelter program, and that there is neither space nor money to provide immediate housing for every eligible family. The Housing and Livable Communities Office filed emergency regulations at 11.59 a.m. Tuesday, just hours before the hearing, 
before Squires Lee detailing the changes enacted by the state in the emergency housing program. Those regulations allow Augustus to set a limit to the number of applicants accepted into the program. It also allows him to set a wait list and to prioritize families for quick placement. The governor has suggested that medical vulnerability could be used to prioritize families for placement and could also use dangerousness factors and other criteria for immediate placement. The courtroom drama played out against a backdrop of advocates for homeless residents rallying on the statehouse steps. Kelly Turley of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless had sharp words for legislators, telling them that a wait list is not a place to sleep. She said that as the weather chills and the city of Boston implements a ban on tents and encampments, families will be forced to sleep outside in emergency rooms doubled and tripled with family members and friends, in their cars, in campgrounds, or even on Boston Common. Even as Healy sets limits to those the state can shelter, she is still calling on the federal government to express aid to Massachusetts in the form of expediting the processing of migrants and the paperwork that would allow them to work in Massachusetts and exit state care. She has also called for more funding and the establishment of a federal common shelter in the Bay State. Squires Lee said that she will not prevent the executive from exercising her discretionary authority to manage the emergency shelter program within the limits provided by budgetary limits. The legislature funded the program at $325 million for fiscal 2024, money enough to accommodate 4,100 families. Augustus stated in his emergency regulations document that there are more than an additional 3,000 families in the system, creating a $210 million deficit. Accepting more families into the system would be detrimental to both the new arrivals as well as those already depending on state support. Without the cap, the state could see more than 13,000 families applying for aid, Augustus has calculated. Bidens Will Travel to Maine to Mourn with Community by Darlene Superville of the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. President Joe Biden will travel to Maine today to mourn with the community of Lewiston after 18 people were killed in the deadliest mass shooting in state history, the White House says. Thirteen people were injured in the October 25th shootings at a bar and a bowling alley. Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will pay their respects to the victims, meet with first responders and others, and grieve with families and community members, the White House said in a statement. The suspect, Robert Card, age 40, was found dead of an apparent suicide after a days-long manhunt that led officials to cancel school and order residents to stay indoors. Investigators have yet to establish a motive, but have increasingly focused on the mental health of Card, who was a firearms instructor. Authorities said this week that Card's family had brought their concerns about his deteriorating mental health to the local sheriff five months before the deadly rampage. Card had also undergone a mental health evaluation after he began behaving erratically at a training facility last summer. Several thousand people attended vigils for the victims over the weekend, and residents started returning to work and school on Monday after stay-at-home orders were lifted. 
Biden was alerted about the shooting as he hosted a White House state dinner honoring the bonds between the United States and Australia. He later stepped out of the event to speak by telephone with Maine Governor Janet Mills and the state's representatives in Congress. In a statement, the president decried the senseless and tragic shooting and urged Republicans in Congress to help pass legislation that would outlaw assault-style weapons and high-capacity magazines, enact universal background checks, require that guns be stored safely, and end immunity from liability for gun manufacturers. Biden also ordered that U.S. flags on public property be flown at half-staff through Monday out of respect for the victims. November 7th Barnstable election has seven town council races by Michael Sarita of the Cape Cod Times. Barnstable voters on November 7th will head to polls for the annual town election, featuring races for town council in seven of the 13 precincts. Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Election information, including sample ballots, can be found at the Town of Barnstable's website. Barnstable has about 36,000 registered voters, according to the Secretary of State's office. How can I find my Barnstable polling location? Polling takes place in various locations according to precincts. If you don't know which precinct you're in, visit sec.state.ma.us slash where do I vote MA. What are the contested town council races in Barnstable? In the race for councilor in precinct one, incumbent Gordon Starr is challenged by Paul Gage. Precinct 2 incumbent Eric Steinhilbert faces Kristen Turkelson. Precinct 5 has incumbent Paul Kuzak facing John Crow. Precinct 6 has incumbent Paul Neary facing write-in candidate Paul Phelan. Precinct 9, Charlie Bloom and Michael Messinas are running for the seat vacated by incumbent Tracy Shaughnessy. Precinct 11 incumbent Christine Clark is squaring off against Toby Leary. Precinct 12 has Paula Schnepp facing Kyle Kondahoe. These races were featured in the Times' October 22nd print edition and are available at capecodtimes.com. No contested races for Barnstable School Committee. There are no competitive races for Barnstable School Committee. Three candidates are seeking election to three positions. Current Chairman Michael Judge and Vice Chairman Kathleen Bent are seeking re-election. The third candidate is Jennifer Cullum, who currently represents Precinct 13 on the Town Council, but who is terming out of that position. Who are the candidates for the Barnstable Housing Authority? The Housing Authority has two four-year commissioner terms, but just one candidate who will be on the ballot, incumbent Deborah Converse, who presently serves as treasurer. The other seat will be filled by a write-in candidate or an appointee if no write-in candidate or candidates step forward, according to the Barnstable Town Clerk's Office. There are no questions for voters to decide on the ballot. Barnstable polling locations. Precinct 1, the Zion Union Church on Attucks Lane in Hyannis. Precinct 2, St. George's Greek Orthodox Church on Falmouth Road in Centerville. Precinct 3, Barnstable Adult Community Center on Falmouth Road in Hyannis. Precinct 4, Our Lady of Victory Hall on South Main Street in Centerville. 
Precinct 5, the Osterville Fire Station on Main Street in Osterville. Precinct 6, the Gym of Christ Chapel on Oak Street in Centerville. Precinct 7 is Freedom Hall on Main Street in Cotuit. Precinct 8 is the Hyannis Youth and Community Center Rink on Bassett Lane in Hyannis. Precinct 9 is at the same place. Precinct 10, the Seventh-day Adventist Community Building on Falmouth Road in Marston's Mills. Precinct 11, the West Barnstable Community Building on Meeting House Way in West Barnstable. Precinct 12, the Seventh-day Adventist Community Building on Falmouth Road in Marston's Mills. And Precinct 13 is also at the Hyannis Youth and Community Center Rink on Bassett Lane in Hyannis. We've reached the halfway point of our program, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Peter Joseph McPherson. Peter Joseph McPherson, a Cape Cod boy who found friendship and a calling in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina as an adult, died on Monday, October 30th in Candler, North Carolina. His death at age 26 came after a valiant battle with depression. He died by suicide after professing his deep love for his family. Peter is survived by his parents, Patricia and David of Pocasset, his brother and best friend, Brendan of Somerville, and his beloved sister, Erin of Watertown. He's also survived by his grandparents, Don and Patricia of Plymouth. He was preceded in death by his grandparents, David and Mary O'Connor of Danvers. Other survivors include 10 cousins and his seven aunts and uncles. Born at Toby Hospital in Wareham, Peter grew up on Cape Cod in the town of Bourne. As a boy, he enjoyed everything childhood on the Cape has to offer, from diving off the raft at Gray Gables Beach to sailing lessons on Finney's Harbor. After elementary and middle school in Bourne, Peter attended Sturgis Charter Public School in Hyannis, graduating in 2015. He was a four-year member of the Sturgis East cross-country team. He also participated in baseball, lacrosse, track, and theater at Sturgis. In 2018, Peter graduated from Cape Cod Community College, where he served as a reporter for the Main Sheet student newspaper before moving to Boone, North Carolina to attend Appalachian State University. A whiz with a chef's knife and whatever ingredients he had at hand, Peter pursued a culinary career in North Carolina. At the time of his death, he worked as a cook at Chai Panny in Asheville, North Carolina, winner of the James Beard Foundation's Outstanding Restaurant Award in 2022. Peter previously worked at Lost Province Brewing Company and Foggy Pine Books in Boone and Corner Cycle in Falmouth. Peter was known for his passion for music, art, books, nature, cycling, the Boston Celtics, and Liverpool Football Club. Above all else, he will be remembered for his kindness, empathy, and unwavering support for anyone who struggled. Awake for Peter will be held from 1 to 4 p.m. on Sunday, November 5th at Chapman Funerals and Cremations on West Falmouth Highway in West Falmouth. His funeral will take place at 10 a.m. Monday, November 6th at St. Elizabeth Seton on Quaker Road in North Falmouth, followed by burial at the Catawamut Cemetery. 
mourners are reminded to be aware of potential travel delays caused by construction on the Bourne Bridge. Donations in Peter's memory may be made to the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Cape Cod and the Islands. For online obituary, directions, and guestbook, visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Orrin Kenneth Jenkins, Dateline, Daniel Island. Orrin Kenneth Jenkins passed away peacefully on October 14th in Daniel Island, South Carolina, at the age of 86. He was the beloved husband of Nancy Stone Jenkins, a loving father to their four children, and a very proud grandfather to their 12 grandchildren. Oren was born on January 2, 1937, to the late Fulton Jenkins and Claire Jenkins in Nova Scotia, Canada. After moving with his family to the United States when Oren was in grade school, he spent the remainder of his educational years in the U.S. and went on to study at Cornell University. Oren graduated from Cornell with a degree in metallurgical engineering and later earned an MBA at Fairfield University. During the spring of his senior year at Cornell, Oren met Nancy, who was also a Cornell student. Following their graduation, they were married in August 1959. Shortly after the wedding, Oren spent six months as an Army reservist, earning the designation as an expert with a rifle, and we thank him for that service. Oren began his career in White Plains, New York, as a sales specialist for Allegheny Ludlam Steel Corporation. With a move to Fairfield, Connecticut, Oren, Nancy, and their four children had a wonderful 10-year experience establishing lifelong friendships and enjoying all that the area had to offer, including skiing, sailing, and more. After several promotions, Oren was transferred to the home office in Pittsburgh, where he and Nancy chose Sewickley, a suburb of Pittsburgh, to continue raising their family. Oren quickly became a part of the community fabric with Nancy and the children, spending time playing tennis, golf, fly fishing, and volunteering his time with the Boy Scouts. His love of fly fishing and the time he spent sailing are now part of his legacy, with his children and grandchildren also enjoying these and other outdoor sports. After more than 30 years with Allegheny Ludlam Corporation, Oren retired and he and Nancy moved to Cape Cod. At the Cape, he continued to feed his desire to learn by taking educational classes on a variety of topics, volunteering at the local library, and enjoying the outdoors with Nancy. His grandchildren visited often and he loved hosting them, spending time on the ponds, beaches, and exploring the many parts of Cape Cod. Oren was known as a gentle, intelligent, patient, and kind person. He used his dry humor and easy demeanor to quickly establish relationships, many of them lasting until his passing. Oren is deeply missed by all who knew him. He is survived by his children and their spouses and his 12 grandchildren. A memorial celebration will be held at a later date. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Their Friend's New Girlfriend is 15 Years Younger and Acts Like It. Dear Carolyn, a good friend I've known since college 20 years ago recently started dating a woman who is about 15 years younger than he is. While that age difference is relatively significant, the gap with her emotional and social maturity is even starker. 
she basically moved directly from her parents' home in another part of the country into his apartment and has no social life outside of him. Since she's very quiet, every interaction with her is totally one-sided and extremely awkward. All of our shared friends, dozens of people, are perplexed by their relationship and don't know how to ask him about it. He is a fun, good-looking guy and always has had an active romantic life, so it's not like he's desperate for a partner. Since his girlfriend is so incredibly awkward, some have stopped inviting him to social events because they don't want to have to deal with her being there. We don't want to lose our friend, but also don't know how to ask him about his girlfriend, since she's already living with him, and it would probably be embarrassing for him to hear how awkward it is to be around her. Any ideas? Signed, Awkward. Dear Awkward, some people don't want a partnership of equals. Some people find a partnership of equals in qualities and interactions that aren't visible to those on the outside. Take your pick, because that's really all any of you has standing to do at this point. That is, unless one of you is this guy's blunt, say-anything, ride-or-die, closer-for-even-the-hardest-truth-telling kind of best friend, who can just ask out loud what he sees in his silent new girlfriend. The kind of friend who exists mostly on TV, I suspect, but who I always hope is real. In this case, for your friend's sake, to make sure he has his eyes open to the health of his new situation. I hope all this for your sakes too, I should say, because it's hard to watch a beloved member of a tight and enduring friend circle do anything to mess with the chemistry especially something that seems self-defeating. But not everyone will share my sympathy. Certainly not any reserved young women getting iced out because their boyfriend's college cliques deemed them insufficiently fun. Actually caring about friends, for who they are versus what they do for you, means you put in the work to welcome any dates they bring who aren't objectively offensive, cruel, rude, criminal, or openly whatever-ist. Maybe this awkward girlfriend is not only a hidden gem, but also destined to show her lovable qualities as you prove you can be trusted. Or not. But those decades of his good friendship say you owe her that chance. There is, however, no reciprocal debt for him to choose someone to your liking, or explain to you all why he didn't. Sometimes, not knowing know-how to ask about something is a memo not to ask it because you can't even manufacture grounds to make it your business. If he ever seems unhappy, then approach away in your role as his friend, noticing X and wondering if he's okay. Cape Cod will host Veterans Day Services by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Here's a list of Veterans Day events scheduled so far on Cape Cod. Other events will be added as they become available and can be seen online at capecodtimes.com. Falmouth. Falmouth's annual Veterans Day ceremony is set to take place at 11 a.m. on November 11th at the Falmouth Public Library. The procession to the library begins at 10.45 a.m., followed by speeches featuring keynote speaker Master Chief Jacob Linder of Air Station Cape Cod and Pastor Nell Fields from the McCoy Congregational Church. 
Following the event, the Falmouth Elks Lodge will host guests for refreshments and snacks, sponsored by the Joe Q Veteran Coffee Break. The Falmouth Public Library is on Main Street, and the Falmouth Elks Lodge is on Palmer Avenue. The procession, speeches, and social events are free to attend. Hyannis. In Hyannis, the Mass Military Support Foundation is hosting Breakfast for Vets from 8.30 to 10 on November 10th at the Emerald Resort on Scudder Avenue. Seats are $25 per person and can be reserved online at eventbrite.com. The Veterans Outreach Center of Cape Cod and the Islands is hosting its Veterans Day Ceremony and Veterans Town Hall from 9.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on the Village Green and at Town Hall in Hyannis. The ceremony begins on the green with a laying of wreaths and a speech from Barnstable Town Councilor and U.S. Army Ranger Paul Kuzak. The ceremony will then move to Town Hall as veterans share their stories, followed by brunch from the Hyannis Elks Lodge. Born. Operation Flags for Vets will be placing flags on the 78,000 graves at Massachusetts National Cemetery from 9 a.m. to noon on November 4th. Operation Flags for Vets began placing flags around the cemetery in 2011 after founder Paul Monty lost his son Jared, who died in combat in Afghanistan in 2006. He received the Medal of Honor from President Obama for his service to his country in 2009. On a visit to the cemetery on Veterans Day, Monty noticed a lack of flags on the graves and decided he wanted to do something about it. After four years of lobbying in Congress and working tirelessly, in 2011, he finally received permission to lay flags on the graves on Veterans Day and Memorial Day. In all honesty, this is what they fought for, Patricia Monti, Paul's sister, said in an interview with The Times. They wear the American flag on their uniform for a reason, and they deserve to be honored with a flag on their gravesite. The flags will be on display from November 4th to November 12th. To volunteer or find out more information, visit the website operationflagsforvets.org. The American Legion Post 230 is hosting a Veterans Day ceremony at 10.30 a.m. on November 11th at the Bourne Veterans Memorial Community Center. Mashpee. Mashpee's Veterans Day ceremony will take place at 10 a.m. on November 11th at Mashpee Community Park and Veterans Garden. Chatham. The Town of Chatham's Veterans Day observance will take place at 11 a.m., on November 11th at the World War I Memorial on Main Street. Provincetown. In Provincetown, two ceremonies will be held on November 11th for Veterans Day. At 10 a.m. at McMillan Pier, a wreath will be thrown into the water in honor of all those who served at sea, along with a ceremonial volley by the Provincetown Police Department Honor Guard. Following the wreath toss, the ceremonies continue at 11 a.m. at Doughboy Soldiers Monument at Provincetown Town Hall, where all veterans will be honored. Members of the Provincetown Select Board will deliver remarks alongside performances of America the Beautiful and the National Anthem by Denise Russell, a ceremonial volley by the Provincetown Police Department Honor Guard, and taps by Michael Quello. It's like a home, Jack's Outback 2, for sale after almost 20 years.
by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. A feeling of warmth and homeliness greets me as I walk into Jack's Outback 2 off Route 6A in Yarmouthport. The conversations of guests and the clinking of forks hitting plates and dishes being made fill the air. Dona Barada, restaurant owner just shy of 20 years, introduces herself and we take a seat in a booth by a window. I'm 68 years old, Barada said. I'm a one-man show. I live upstairs and it never ends. I miss a lot of family time. I've missed birthdays. I've missed graduations and I don't want to miss them anymore. It's time. After a year of mulling over the idea, she put Jack's up for sale in May, listed at $1,075,000, according to a listing by commercial realty advisors, but took it down due to the busy summer season. After Labor Day, Jack's returned to the market, and there's been a lot of action since then. Barada bought then-Jack's Outback in 2004 after former proprietors Jack Braganton-Smith and Bobby Edwards failed to make a deal with the building's owner, J.H.H. Realty, owned by Jack Harris. When word broke out about Jack's going on the market nearly two decades ago, Barada made it known she wanted it. She, like everyone else who visited Jack's, fell in love with the serve-yourself breakfast place known for Braganton Smith's warm heart and hurling of insults. When an attorney in Florida who represented Harris's estate called and asked if she was interested in the property, then assessed for $322,000, according to an article by the Times, Barada immediately took up the offer, visiting the bank a few days later to seal the deal. I remember that day like it was yesterday, she said. But when the news broke out, the community was anything but happy to see Jack's fall into someone else's hands. It was horrible, she said. I was in tears most of the time. They were such a tight-knit group that it hurt them and hurt me. It was hard. I was just immediately the enemy of the people. She tells me of the articles written about the horrible mystery woman buying the famed eatery and how the drama which unfolded landed on the pages of the Boston Globe. In the midst of the chaos, Barada decided to call a truce, putting a note of introduction outside Jack's door, since he only lived upstairs, asking if they could meet. How the restaurant became Jack's Outback too. Shortly after delivering the note, she received a phone call from Braganton Smith telling her to come over, the first of many meetings the pair would have in the months until Jack's reopened. I met Jack and he was wonderful, she said. I sat with him up there and I cried. He said, everything's gonna be okay, you're gonna be great. The pair formed a bond with Braganton Smith supporting Barada throughout the buying and renovating process. He even gave the place his blessing, allowing Jack's outback to stay without Jack. I said, Jack, what am I gonna do about the name, Barada said. He said, just name it Jack's Outback 2. Jack's Outback 2 officially opened in November 2004 after Barada gave it a new coat of paint, a completely renovated kitchen, and a patio outside for guests to play cornhole and Jenga. When she opened, she greeted, some greeted her with open arms as they rejoiced in their beloved breakfast place returning. Others took some time to win over, and a select few still vow to never step foot in the place. 
I was walking into a headwind for a long time, and I just never looked back, she said. I saw Jack very close to his death, and I said, Jack, I'm going to make you proud. Barada kept some traditions, like the annual spaghetti dinner fundraiser for the Yarmouthport Library and free hot dogs out front during the village's holiday stroll in December. She even brought in a new Jack, a golden retriever named after Bragginton Smith, who stood guard and greeted guests for 16 and a half years. It's been a golden retriever on this front stoop since the first year I was here, Barada said. Soon, a greeting from a golden became par for the course as Andy, Jack's daughter, joined his side until his death and kept watch for 13 and a half years. Now, Ivy is the dog in charge. There's always been a trail of golden retrievers under the building, and I think that goes along with it. The it is the magic of Jack's, something that's hard to deny. Everyone greets you with a smile. The regulars and staff are on a first-name basis. If a regular hasn't stopped in, they call and check in. It's a special kind of communal meeting place. I wanted people to feel comfortable here, Barada said. I wanted people to feel like they were my guests, not my customers. Over the years, Barada has seen kids who were bussing tables for their first job walk stages at their college graduations, current Current and former staffers get married and have children and even mourned a few regulars who passed on. It's like a home, Corey Blake, a line cook and server at Jack's, said. You walk in and it feels like a home and they're treated like they're at home. As for Barada's staff, they speak high praise of their boss, saying she makes them feel valued, something many haven't felt at work before. This is the first place I've worked at that makes me feel like I do a good job, Blake said. I remember leaving here after my job interview and Barada was like, we'd be happy to have you. Jill McArdle, a server at Jack's said, I walked out and I got in the car and I burst into tears. I was just so happy to be somewhere that was appreciative. Now Barada hopes to find a successor who appreciates what she and Bragginton Smith created. Though she doesn't know what comes next for her, besides moving out of the apartment upstairs into her newly purchased house in the village and not setting her alarm for 4.30 a.m., she hopes to return to the place as she found it years ago, but as a customer sitting at the counter. It'll be hard to begin with, Barada said. I hope I'm welcome here, whatever it is. Take over the Cape this week. Here are the Cape Cod Times's best bets by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. The Falmouth Chamber Players Orchestra's Fall Concerts, conducted by guest conductor and featured pianist Andrew Jonathan Welch, are coming up on November 4th and 5th. The program includes Overture No. 2 in D minor by Emily Mayer, Symphonic Variations by Cesar Frank, and Beethoven's Symphony No. 1. Welch is going to be playing the symphonic variations by Cesar Franck, the piano solo, himself, while he also conducts the orchestra from the piano bench, Melanie Hain, president of the orchestra board, said. We've been working with him on this for five or six weeks. Well, as an orchestra, especially a community orchestra, you only get to work with your soloist for maybe one rehearsal before the concert. So by working with him for over a month, we've really gotten insights into the piece that we wouldn't have been able to have any other way, which has really been wonderful.
Showtime is 3 p.m. on both days at the John Wesley United Methodist Church on Gifford Street in Falmouth. A $20 donation is recommended for adults and students are free. Tickets are available at the door. I think they'll have a good afternoon of classical music with some new music and some familiar favorites, Haynes said. Learn about the health of Outer Cape's water sources at the Truro Public Library. The Truro Climate Action Committee returns to the Truro Public Library to kick off its monthly educational programming with Outer Cape Water Sources. Outer Cape Water Sources is the first part of a three-part series focusing on the Outer Cape's bodies of water. Panelists, Emily Beebe, a health and conservation agent from the Truro Health and Conservation Office, Sophia Fox, an aquatic ecologist at the Cape Cod National Seashore, Andrew Gottlieb, Executive Director of the Association to Preserve Cape Cod, and Tara Nye Lewis, Water Resources Analyst at the Cape Cod Commission, will discuss the overall health of the Outer Cape's bodies of water and the impact climate change and housing development has on them. The discussion will take place at 6 p.m. on November 9th at the Truro Public Library on Standish Way in North Truro. Join author Judy Rakowski for a talk at the Falmouth Jewish Congregation. The Falmouth Jewish Congregation is hosting Judy Rakowski, author of Jews in the Garden, a Holocaust survivor, the fate of his family, and the secret history of Poland in World War II, for a free talk on November 6th. An award-winning journalist, Rakowski rose to fame while working for the Boston Globe, the Providence Journal, and People magazine covering topics from organized crime to post 9-11 security issues and online bullying plaguing teenagers. Her newest book, Jews in the Garden, follows her family's journey into discovering what happened to their relatives who attempted to hide in Poland during the Holocaust. The talk will be hosted by Boston Globe classical music critic Jeremy Eichler and will take place at 7 p.m., on November 6th at the Falmouth Jewish Congregation's Blanche and Joel D. Seifer Community Center on Hatchville Road in East Falmouth. Eight Cousins Bookshop will host book sales of Jews in the Garden at the event. The event is free to attend, but advanced reservations are required. To reserve your seat, register online at the website falmouthjewish.org. Where to Snag a Reservation for Thanksgiving Dinner on Cape Cod by Frankie Rowley, the Cape Cod Times. Thanksgiving, a time for gathering with loved ones, eating good food, and watching a football game or two. Traditionally, Thanksgiving dinner is an at-home event with hours spent fussing about in the kitchen, making sure the turkey is golden, the potatoes are mashed, and the casseroles all make it into the oven. What if, instead of worrying about all the basting and sauteing, you left the cooking and the cleaning in someone else's hands. If the idea piques some interest, here are some places to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner on the Cape, where the only thing you have to worry about is finishing the food on your plate. Wakasset Resort. The Wakasset Resort is hosting a three-day Thanksgiving celebration. On Wednesday, the resort will kick the festivities off with a homecoming party at the Outer Bar and Grill with complimentary light bites and drinks. On Thursday, Thanksgiving Day celebrations commence with their gala buffet at 28 Atlantic and the Pavilion. 
In true New England fashion, a raw bar full of oysters and lobsters will be at the buffet alongside some traditional favorites like turkey, gravy, and cranberry sauce. But if Thanksgiving food isn't your cup of tea, fresh made-to-order pasta, and some Asian cuisines like Korean meatballs and shrimp tempura will also be available. For the little ones, a kid's menu will be available. Once you're done at dinner, head out to the outer bar and grill to watch the football and enjoy some snacks, turkey sandwiches, and booze from the bar. On Black Friday, the festivities dwindle down with an a la carte brunch at 28 Atlantic fit with some healthier foods and juices, plus brunch cocktails. To attend the Waquasset Resort's Thanksgiving celebration, reservations can be made online for the Gala Buffet and Friday brunch. Plates for the Gala Buffet are $195 per adult, $100 per child, 6 to 12, $50 per toddler, 3 to 5, and children 2 and under eat free. The Belfry Inn and Bistro if you want to ditch the cooking and the cleaning but don't want to spend over $100 per person, then the Belfry Inn and Bistro's Thanksgiving dinner might be a good option for you. Their Thanksgiving dinner costs $68 per adult and $25 per child if ordering from the kids' menu. The menu consists of three courses, offering items like cider roasted turkey, brandied lobster bisque, and pumpkin creme brulee. For the kids, dinner consists of a super salad, some turkey, and sides and a dessert. Reservations can be made online at the Belfry Inn's website. A charge of $50 per person will be made to hold and guarantee all reservations. Dinner will be served from noon to 5 p.m. The point. What better way to enjoy a Thanksgiving dinner than by gazing out over the Pilgrim Monument in Provincetown? At the point, the Crown Point's on-site restaurant, their four-course Thanksgiving dinner has options for everyone to have a happy turkey day. Though small, their menu hits on all the staples. Start with a roasted butternut bisque, followed by a pear and arugula salad. For mains, three options, a roasted herb turkey dinner, cauliflower steak and pan-seared salmon are available. For dessert, it's either pumpkin pie or cheesecake. Reservations for the Point's Thanksgiving dinner can be made online at crownpoint.com. The Daniel Webster Inn. Situated in Sandwich Village, the Daniel Webster's dining room looks out into the village's wooded landscape, creating a cozy atmosphere to enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner. For traditional turkey dinner, plates for adults are $51.95, $23.95 for children under 12, and $13.95 for children under 4. However, substitutions for turkey can be made if you're not a fan or not a meat eater. Dinner will be served from 11.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., and reservations can be made online at the Daniel Webster's website. There also are special Thanksgiving dinners being offered at the Wild Goose Tavern, the Nantucket Hotel, Pelham House, Bettini, and the Chatham Bars Inn. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.